Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. The one and only of you, the Girl Economist, come to you on this edition of Rogue News. We have with us Matthew Errett of the Geostrategic Hour. You can check out Matt's work over at his Substack. Go there. Subscribe to his Substack. Amazing, amazing analysis. You will find there and nowhere else. And also check out the risingtidefoundation.net as well as canadianpatriot.com. Those are Two other sites that Matthew's on, especially the Rising uh, RisingTideFoundation.net, that is an amazing. That I call that the modern library of Alexander. There is a great deal of learning that you can do over there. So go check that out, and also CanadianPatriot.com, where Matt breaks down the entire geopolitical, geopo- um, geoeconomic uh, play. And with that being said, Matt, what's going on, buddy? How are you? And be late hey, to Canada Day. Yeah, right, eh? Canada Day. Yeah, yeah, basically anytime there's somebody with a maple leaf on their face, I, I try not to make eye contact. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that being said, it's not really, I mean, it's it, that was on July 1st. And yeah. uh, and today I was, I was hoping since we have Canada Day on July 1st that just happened, we have Independence Day on July 4th. And additionally, there's this uh, weird thing called the European Union that had one of their, their, they celebrated one of their biggest milestones towards achieving the European Union on July 1st as well with the creation of the Merger Treaty of 1967. Yeah. Uh, that sort of really put, streamlined everything into congealing into this like nasty behemoth that we know of today. I figured, you know, this little trifecta of, uh, of celebrations, so-called, would be something I'd want to treat today for the audience and really hopefully showcase uh, and, and help people appreciate what the United States was intended to be why it didn't yet achieve the uh, the goals that were set out by the founding fathers why that was sabotaged um because and, and also <clears throat> just for all the haters out there to get across that there's something a lot more beautiful to the origins of the united states and there's a reason why me as a canadian and i'm in a weird situation in some ways being a canadian conspiracy theorist unapologetically who also loves the united states that's a, that's a rare thing and being in montreal which is a little bit of a of a quasi British European American hybrid uh, culture. It's it's a, it's a weird synthesis of different civilizations of the of the Atlantic. Um, I figured it would maybe give me a, a a perspective that I could share with other people and how to approach and why I uh, see the United States and the world the way I do. Um, on the first point of Europe, the uh, <laughs> You know, the, the, the Jesuit Pope, I was struck by the fact that just a couple of weeks ago, you guys probably saw this, right? Yeah, he, uh, huge. He put Rob, Robert Schumann on the fast track to sainthood. 
<laughs> you know who Robert yes. Schumann is? I'm not, I'm not talking about the, the musician, by the way. He's a good musician. That's a good musician. This is the Robert Schumann who worked with the fascist Pétain government of, of France. That was a Nazi collaborator. Um, and uh, he's the, the founder, the founding father, along with Winston Churchill of the European Union. And Pope Francis's logic was, well, you know, the European Union's existence is a miracle. It survived so many times. So that's a miracle. So that's sufficient to satisfy the three miracle uh, limit that would, you know, give somebody sainthood. That, that's it. That yeah. makes perfect sense, man. And, you know, I'm glad you touched base upon the 67 um, agreement that that kind of congealed what we know as this this uh, rotting pustule of a mess known as the European Union. But also pretty interesting is this. In 1968, something very key and profound happened in the economic world, and that was mm-hmm. when J.P. Morgan created a, a company called Euroclear. And Euroclear became the clearinghouse for many of the early bonds that would eventually help to create and fund and bring about the financial creation of the European Union. Euroclear still exists today, last I checked. And uh, what they're used currently is basically to hide all the dumped dollars that are coming out of Saudi Arabia, that are coming out of China, that are coming out of Russia, that are coming out of uh, large institutions. They are dumped in Euroclear uh, today. And Euroclear uh, is, a, is a major uh, node for a lot of the uh, uh, off-books uh, bond sales and, and bond issuances. And they are active currently in 96 countries. So they're a, 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 a very integral financial part of, of, of the Eurozone or, or, or the European Union, without which the EU would have never came to be. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Sick. And it, it ties in, I think, to anybody who would be attempting to make proper sense of their recent history. And by recent, I'm talking like the last three, four hundred years. OK, uh, needs to have that in mind, that there is a conspiratorial aspect. The, the, the idea of a deep state is not specifically an American phenomenon. It's an internationally extended supranational phenomenon with different aspects to it. It has intelligence aspects. It has financial uh, warfare aspects. Um, it has many, many things. Military is just one minor, but I mean, it's important, but it's one of many aspects of what has been not just a new problem in the world. It has been a problem going back a very long time, as anybody listening to our show uh, regularly knows. And before I jump into this, because again, I'm going to treat again, the European Union in one way, but I'm, I really want to get across a new idea and understanding of what the United States is and was. And it's a weird time because it's, it's feels weird for a lot of people to celebrate Independence Day when the United States is not feeling very independent right now, right? There's, it's a bit of a shit show. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so we're going to look at Canada, the United States, a bit of Europe. And I want people to hold in mind what was discussed last week. This is sort of a continuation of our discussion in last Tuesday's episode. Maybe we can put it in the, in the description box for anybody who has not seen that, where we discussed the... Um, what is what is what is the international rules-based order versus the multipolar alliance, which has founded itself upon the principles of the United States, uh, the United Nations Charter? Um, that's what Putin and Xi Jinping have constantly repeated that that any type of international law has to be founded upon that. And in last week's episode, we went through some of the battles between the uh, the forces of patriotic nationalists around the world, including Franklin Roosevelt, who led the charge to try to break the system of unipolarism back in the the 1930s and 40s, when they crafted the foundations of the the post-war age. We also looked at why that was sabotaged, how that was dismantled, 
by the by FDR's death and the takeover of U.S. foreign policy and internal policy and a lot of other assassinations internationally. But we also looked at how the U.N. Charter, when you really, really look at that battle, you could see it in many ways as a continuation of the aborted efforts by not only the founding fathers, but also the the people who were working with Abraham Lincoln to try to extend the successful aspects of the best of the United States to the rest of the world in helping the nations of the world break, not only break free of poverty and starvation and other things, but also of divide to conquer wars by enhancing everyone's ability to have full spectrum economies, manufacturing, agriculture, industry, everything in every nation so that all trade that would happen internationally would actually be fair trade under that basis. So what I want to do today is share a dense uh, PowerPoint, which I put together kind of last minute, um, but I think it'll come together nicely. So I'll do a share screen here. Hey, Matthew, uh, when you bring up that, that PowerPoint, can you bring it up in presentation mode so that way it... Oh, yeah. It, it'll go a little bit more. It'll be a little bit larger for the audience. Okay. Oh, damn. Uh-oh. All right. <clears throat> Okay, hopefully nobody really registered any of the things that flash in front of their faces subconsciously. Um, so no. Uh, so what we'll do, um, I just want to say as a little bit of a self plug, uh, two days ago and on July 4th, I was able to finish a book I'd been working on for a while. It's the first volume of a two volume series uh, called The Clash of the Two Americas, volume one, The Unfinished Symphony. On the cover, um, I selected and it's not published yet. Uh, my other books that are published are right there on the screen. And this should be published very, very soon. Uh, volume two is mostly written as well, which this this first volume deals with like America, the fight for creating on this world an international system of sovereign republics that Ben Franklin uh, spearheaded. And it goes all the way until 1901 with the de the assassination of uh, William McKinley. So just to, just to put that out there, that Keep that on your radar. It's coming out. And, and the, the picture that I selected was by Benjamin Franklin's, Franklin's friend, uh, Benjamin West, who was a leading painter that Ben Franklin uh, arranged to be installed in Britain in uh, the 1770s, uh, where this guy, Benjamin West, founded. He was the founder and the, and the president of the, the British Academy of Fine Arts, where he completely transformed the uh, he, it was real cultural warfare on a very high level. And Benjamin West painted this in 1783. This is the signing of the Treaty of Paris. And the Treaty of Paris is something, you know, the, this is what ended the, the Revolutionary War against Britain. But it's never been finished. And I love that it has never been finished because the British delegation refused to come and sit. You know, you have John Jay, Franklin, uh, Adams, you have Franklin's grandson. I uh, forget the guy behind. But the British delegation just never showed up. <laughs> and so the painting couldn't be finished. And I think that that really speaks well for what the 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 story of the United States actually is because <clears throat> it really, it didn't really end in 1783. It's been an ongoing process ever since then punctuated by moments that really leap out as civil wars or points of crisis. But it's, it's always been a fight between this uh, deep state thing within the U S that never left in 1776 and then something genuine and approaching it in any other way really leaves one's mind handicapped. So the, the, the spirit of Ben Franklin is, is going to run strong throughout the story, but I figured the first quote is the famous quote that we might as well start with, with Ben Franklin from the 1760s looking uh, cheekily at us. I, I love this painting where he says, those who would sacrifice liberty for security deserve neither. 
And uh, that's a lesson for all times. Amen. All right. So the thing with the United States, and I mentioned this already, the, 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 the United Nations Charter, the fight of Franklin Roosevelt against Churchill, against Keynes, against the colonialists, this was sort of a third potential for breaking the system of empire forever and awakening something beautiful in humanity globally. Uh, that was the third time. The second time is something that I, I want to just introduce here before we get to 1776. Um, this is something which I have used a lot in my writings. This is a, a an image, an image, a map taken from an 1890 book by uh, William Gilpin, Abraham Lincoln's bodyguard, he, the man who like literally kept Lincoln alive before inauguration. He was known as the prophet of progress, of the prophet of manifest destiny. He was one of the earliest architects of the American transcontinental railway going back to the 1840s. His family, the Gilpin family, was highly enmeshed with Ben Franklin's Philosophical Society, were major builders of the Erie Canal projects. Uh, they were major defenders of the National Bank. And Gilpin really fit into that um, tradition really well. And, and towards the end of his life, after he defended the, un the Union during the Civil War, as he was the, uh, the, the governor of the Colorado Territory, um, during a very strategic period when the South, the British-funded South, we're, we're trying to open up a Western front in the United States, which would have probably been too much for Lincoln to handle. And the United States would have been at that time early on severed and reabsorbed back into the empire. But he, he kept that North, that Western front from opening up by unleashing Lincoln greenbacks in Colorado. When there was no money, he did what Lincoln would later on did. And, um, and he moved on for the, the last 30 years of his life to promote internationally with many other people around the world, this idea of a economic, just, and correct map of the world. What you see is a Pacific-centered world. It's one vectored around this keystone of rail development from the old world in the in Russia all the way through the Americas, down to the into South America, uh, Africa, Asia, Europe, you name it. So this is a, a brilliant vision that was really moving forward at that time. And it wasn't just this one eccentric in the United States. Who was promoting this? This is everyone was talking about this. You had people, some of the, the leading friends of the United States, the the of of Abraham Lincoln, who were applying Lincoln's successful method of statecraft in their own uh, parts of the world. Included just a few of them, like Sergei Vita, the guy who becomes Prime Minister of of Russia on the left. You have Otto von Bismarck. Uh, you have Sadi Carnot, the guy who becomes President of France, who's assassinated in 1895. You have Friedrich List, who's studied, he's an, a, a German who creates the, the German Zollverein, the customs union, yep. modeled on what the United States had done to unify the 13 colonies and the Northwest ordinances around protectionism and long, large-scale development. Um, Friedrich List's ideas go on to influence Bismarck. They're in, directly inspired by the U.S. experience. So this is now spreading it after, after the Civil War internationally, and nations are finally breaking away from British free trade, British maritime control of the seas, and a new age is really dawning. This is an, an example of the Trans-Siberian Railway, which was completed in 1905. It was begun in 1890. It was being discussed already in the 1850s when people like uh, the American engineer George Washington Whistler was brought to St. Petersburg where he crafted, he, he was the architect uh, alongside a bunch of Russians that he, he was friends with, 
uh, of the St. Petersburg-Moscow Railway, the biggest railway of Europe at that time. That was an American who was brought in and... Uh, and going forward, that was going to be extended upon, and it was extended upon to build the the first uh, transcontinental uh, railway of the Europe of the European area, and that was the Trans Siberian, built with American locomotives from Baldwin locomotives from Philadelphia, and some of the leading representatives of that are there on the right. Uh, go through the story in, in the upcoming book in many articles. But again, the the key point was this was done with protective tariffs, large scale uh, development, uh, productive credit. And it was complete disobedience, uh, a rejection of British uh, political economy. And obviously in the United States, you had by 1867, the construction of the transcontinental railway that was begun during the Civil War by Lincoln. So in the middle of the Civil War in 1863, he begins this funded by Greenbacks, large, large scale credit to unify the nation. And he had a whole program that again was sabotaged before it could go forward. Gilpin writing in the book um, writes that his vision that railways continue to extend themselves so too so soon to become a universal system over all the lands of the globe. We have seen the energies of the American people bringing into line and into use these new powers, span their continent with the Pacific railways, as with the rapidity of lightning from a mountain loud, availing themselves of the favorable thermal warmth of the plateau and upon the immediate sea coasts, bathed by the Asiatic Gulf Stream, they will continue to expand their work to the Bering Straits, where all the continents are united. This will extend itself along similarly propitious thermal selvage, I don't know what that means, to the oriental Russian coasts into China. Talking about rail lines now into China, right? Um, to prolong this unbroken line of cosmopolitan railways along the latitudinal plateaus of Asia to Moscow and to London will not have long delay. The less significant and isolated continents of the Southern Hemisphere, South America, Africa, and Australasia will be reached by theaters through the Panama, Suez, and the chain of oriental peninsulas and islands. The whole area and all the populations of the globe will thus be united and fused by land, travel, and railway. Um, again, this is very, when you read his book and you look at the, the types of discussions that were happening during that time, it's very much reflective of the Belt and Road Initiative and the, the type of, of thinking motivating the Russian-China alliance today which is really built around an idea of international cooperation, but not built around one world government of a strong unipolar thing telling the weak what to do. It's built upon the elevation of everybody to a higher standard of living by sharing the rights to access industrial production. Um, and also, you know, Gilpin is very clear that he's a follower of Alexander Hamilton, of Henry Clay. Um, who are the great American nationalist economists and, and statesmen of, of, the, of the 19th century. Um, that's how this is going to be funded, is through an idea of national credit. Now, this doesn't happen, right? And it doesn't happen. This brings in now the, uh, the other aspect. We're going to jump back very soon, 100 years into the past, uh, to look at the American Revolution. But one of the things that confuses a lot of Canadians that I interact with, and this is why I, I largely set up the Canadian Patriot magazine, is to, to develop a better understanding of what is Canada by acknowledging really the ugliness, but also then being able to appreciate more the beautiful moments where we almost became a real country, um, which is why, again, it's a bit weird for me to celebrate Canada Day when <laughs> we have this history. And also, it does, this is not just the history, this is the present. So our founding father, you, you, know, you, you in the United States have George Washington. Uh, we have Sir John A. Macdonald, and that's our founding father of Canada. And for Sir John A. Macdonald, he makes a point in 1867, that's the year we get our, our, our first so-called constitution. Um, 
before that, we were just sort of severed British colonies of the Americas. And he says, I would be quite willing, personally, to leave the whole country a wilderness for the next half century. But I fear if Englishmen do not go there, then the Yankees will. So again, let that seep in, right? And this is the founding father of Canada. A lot of Canadian nationalists love this guy. But this is a guy who not only said he doesn't want development of the nation, he only did it practically because he understood that the, the momentum of the time was inevitably going to lead to the United States extending rail uh, throughout the Americas as a continent. And that type of pressure would not have allowed British possessions to be maintained since the British uh, way of doing things is, is always to prevent development, to keep a nation and a colony subjugated so that you could better exploit their resources at best. Exactly. Um that's still practice today. That's what they were doing then. So the, the idea of why do we have a Canadian railway that was completed in 1885? There was no financial incentive for it. Our population was just like today, then less than one-tenth of the United States. There was no uh, demand by the people overall in Canada to build this thing. Um, it was highly expensive. It took 15 years. And it was done as the founding father who said, I'm a Britisher, I was born a Britisher, I will die. This is a racist guy who called for the an Aryan Canada. He wanted Aryanism to be in our in our founding documents as a policy. Uh, uh, the, the myth of Aryanism. Yeah. This is he was really into this weird stuff. So the 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 idea of creating a wedge between the US Russia friendship and alliance that was going to transform the world forever was always what the British saw Canada as as a wedge. And they saw that there was also a lot of pro-Americans all over Canada, especially coming out of the Civil War. A lot of Americans, a lot of Canadians wanted to work to either become an independent republic, or many of them, like in the case especially of British Columbia, which was an isolated colony. That's that's a low-res map. This is what Canada was in 1867. It's it's all a private land. It's it's run by the Hudson's Bay Company, which is called Rupert's Land. It was a private yep. thing for over 200 years, which was the, the majority of the North. Then you had a little sliver on one side being Upper and Lower Canada with a, a couple of other little colonies on the Maritimes. And then on the other side, on the Pacific, you had British Columbia as an isolated colony suffering mass depression, underdevelopment, Mo a, there was a whole annexation movement in um, in British Columbia during this time to say like they don't have any relationship to the the east coast of Canada. There was all the the only relationship that they had economically. The people who live there was with San Francisco, and so they were like, well, if if Britain is going to let us hang um, and go into you know the gold rush had popped, the gold bubble had popped, there was no future. Um, they're like, well, let us at least annex to the U.S. and benefit benefit from this massive progress that's happening there. And there was a massive fight during this entire 1865 or 64 period all the way until 1869, 1870, uh, which is involved the British just saying, OK, they were, they were freaked out. They were, you know, the Union was preserved. The British put all of their resources into supporting the Confederate South keeping the the giving the confederate secret service control or access to all of these canadian territories in toronto and montreal which ran the assassination of lincoln it ran a, it ran terrorist activities against the union from the north and they they failed russia came in the russian fleet on the east and, and west coast of the united states was a direct message to the the european colonialists or the empire saying if you guys come in openly now on a higher level supporting the confederacy that's a, a casus belli with russia that kept them down, but now Britain was a, was about to lose control of the entire territory that they valued so deeply. 
So they, they, they sold, there was legislation passed to sell for pennies on the dollar, Rupert's land, give it to the Canadian government so that that way it would streamline the, the building of a rail, yep. the canceling of all of BC's debts as a bribe to BC saying, okay, well, but also the creation by of proxy, all by proxy. Yeah. They were in the other side of the, uh, the ocean. Um, yeah. And, and also, uh, they were like, okay, we'll, 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 we'll extend the British North America act, the Canadian constitution to, uh, the rest of BC. They just have to join. Um, BC really didn't want to join British Columbia. They were like, no, again, we don't want to. So on top of what I just mentioned, they also had, you also had the mysterious murder of uh, the governor of British Columbia, who was pro, he was a defender of the annexation movement, uh, Frederick Seymour. He was, uh, <laughs> he died under very mysterious circumstances. And when he was ousted, BC was fast tracked into this thing. But this thing is not, a, it's not really uh, a constitution in any way, like you would think of one compared to the United States, which we will look at. But the BC, the British North America Act said that whereas the provinces of Canada, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick have expressed their desire to be federally united into one dominion under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland with a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom, and whereas such a union would conduce to the welfare of the provinces and promote the interests of the British Empire. And then they go on to, <laughs> to outline the organization of the society in Canada around a privy council, around a governor general, mostly a, a deep state that would then organize everything. And the idea of rights were not something seen as inalienable the way you have in the Declaration of Independence. They were seen as something that was granted to the Canadians by the monarch. It, that's all it was. And it wasn't the, the idea of the, the general welfare of the US Constitution, which is the, the heart and soul of what makes the Constitution work, is not there at all. In our case, it's the welfare of, of the, the provinces and the promotion of the interests of the British Empire. That's the foundational, that's the constitutional preamble of Canada. So, I mean, this is a mess. And this is what really subverted in, in many, many ways the creation of a new era of win-win cooperation that was, again, really unfolding as a pregnant moment in time. A lot of assassinations had to happen yep. uh, to make this happen. Not only Lincoln, you had Garfield, you had McKinley, you had, as I mentioned, Governor Seymour, you had Sadie Carnot, who was assassinated in France. Uh, you had Alexander II, who was assassinated by a British-run anarchist bomb. You had Alexander People III. People were dropping like flies. Oh, man. It was the ridiculous. The only other time I've seen that density of murder of, of statesmen was during the, the Kennedy period yep, and JFK a little period. afterwards. Yeah, internationally. So, um, okay. So this is this is what subverts the sec. What I, I'd like to think of as the second American Revolution, the chance to finally uh, finalize the dream of, of this, of 1776. And I mentioned Ben Franklin plays prominently in this. Obviously, I, everyone knows this, but I think the problem with our understanding of Ben Franklin is he's turned into a bit of a caricature in, in our current age. It's it's either he's seen as a creepy, uh, you know, womanizer who is like a tinkerer or uh, there's so many slanders on him or he's banalized into the guy you just see on on money. Um, and there's nothing more substantial. But the the entire thing that came to be the 1776 declaration and everything that came afterwards, the success of the U S war of independence and so much more could not have happened were it not for the mind and actions of this man going back to the, the 1720s, I would say it was already in motion under this guy's increasing responsibilities that he took on for himself. But in the seven, I mean, it is, you know, two days after independence day. So let's just read this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Uh, 
V, you want to just read this? You're, you got a good reading voice. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Oh, let me put on my deep voice. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, do it. Hold on, my screen is acting a little. I'll, I'll do it. Give me one second. Declaration of Independence. My screen's a little wonky. Here we go. <clears throat> uh-huh. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, derived their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are unsufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Perfect. Perfect. No, that's great. That's great. And and yeah, if we ever do a, a serious action-packed like Schwarzenegger version of the uh, the American Revolution in Hollywood, yeah, they, they gotta you hire you. To they gotta hire you to be that guy. <laughs> the... That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> the ship, so that's just alone plays John Adams. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, hey, he's kind of messed up there. <laughs> so this is this is the thing. So to to get across the. Obviously, everyone's had this probably. They've read this many times. But in the context of what I'm saying, I just wanted this read along with the preamble uh, of the, the U.S. Constitution of we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution. And again, you have a painting there where Ben Franklin in both cases, you have Ben Franklin, uh, Adams, and uh, and Jefferson there. Now, Jefferson is given sole credit, and that gives, I think, sometimes a little bit of trouble for those who are trying to say that, no, the the haters are wrong, that the U.S. is really founded upon the idea that that all men are created equal while Jefferson was a giant slave owner. Now, that's that's a big hypocrisy, and it's it, troublesome. Jefferson was a mixed bag. He had good moments. He had really bad moments. Um, but the idea of trying to plug him as the sole author misses the actual truth because there were 42 revisions. He kept on sending version after version back to Ben Franklin, who was the, the, the real mind behind the, the, the crafting of this thing. And Ben Franklin keep, kept on saying, no, try it again, try it again, get rid of this idea of property, replace it with happiness, do something. And he kept on, on modifying it as his editor. Um, so to simply give Jefferson again, sole credit, the guy who did like, you know, <laughs> didn't even free his slaves after he died. He didn't even let them go free. That's that again, does harm, I think, to the the deeper process of history. So Ben Franklin, key guy. Again, Constitutional Convention, 1787. The U.S. was, at this point, 1787, without a constitution, without a strong federal government, it was obviously going to be divided up. The British never gave up after signing the 1783 Peace of Paris. The uh, the economic warfare continued. The the internal uh, operations within the deep state of the United States under under Aaron Burr and others. Aaron Burr being, by the way, you brought up J.P. Morgan. Yep. Wall Street, 
uh, Aaron Burr was the founder of Wall Street. He was the creator of the first Bank of Manhattan um, around the 1790s. Um, and he literally was the leader of the U.S. deep state that was always, he didn't just kill Hamilton. He did a lot more. Um, yeah. And he was always under the pay and under the direction of British intelligence. There's quotes lifted from history that, that directly point this out. Uh, but all that to say, you had the U.S. Constitution, which was the thing that created that federal government under the idea of the general welfare, that everything would be read from the principle of the general welfare, economically, foreign policy, everything. And again, Ben Franklin was the lead guy. And there in the middle, you have Franklin looking right at you. It's a 1940s painting. And you have next to him, you got Hamilton, his prodigy, uh, talking to him. And there was something that, again, the fight is so much more rich than the the fluffy hallmark story we're given, which just brushes over the deeper fights. Um, so Franklin is everywhere in the story. And for again, for Canadians, because I'm talking to both Americans and Canadians, Canadians often pride themselves today for being not American. And you can't blame some Canadians, uh, especially baby boomers, people who lived through, you know, the Cold War. They saw the United States acting very badly, jumping into wars in Vietnam. Uh, they saw U.S. corporations increasingly buy up Canada. Uh, they saw it under NAFTA and other things. So they've seen the U.S. behaving like a shithead for a very long time. So you can't blame entirely people for being anti-American. But it's gone. It gets out of hand. And there's a lack of appreciation for what has taken control of the United States such that it is acting so contradictory to its own founding principles and better traditions. There's no appreciation. So Canada was offered the chance to be a part of the, the Declaration of Independence. We were even given, I mean, Ben Franklin was up here for several months um, organizing in Montreal in May and April of 1776 to try to persuade the Canadians to send a delegation down and uh, and sign on as the 14th colony to say to Great Britain, we're going to, we're going to go free. Um, unfortunately that, that didn't turn out so well. Uh, the British controls back then were very, very high and the corruption, the people of, of Quebec, cause that was all Quebec was back of Canada. It was just French Canada. There was no English Canada, Cana uh, Canadians yet. They were that, that was the United empire loyalists of the American blue blood establishment that were always dis they hated the American cause. And they, were the ones who left in 1776, the Tories, and and were given land in Toronto, what became Ontario and, and Quebec. But at this time, it was just the French. And the French loved the Americans, but the problem is the French uh, priesthood, for the most part, as well as the uh, the governors, the governor generals, who were the, the iron fist in Canada, with a, it, was, it was a dictatorship. They, uh, they basically passed rules in the churches saying that any... French Canadian farmer or anybody who would fight with Washington is going to be excommunicated. And for a Catholic farmer, a peasant, that's a big deal. That means you're going to burn in hell forever. Yeah. So that was a, a big incentive to not do it, unfortunately. And Ben Franklin left uh, Quebec empty handed and it became 13 colonies, not uh, not 14. As Matthew, can been. I ask a quick question? Yes, uh, sir. To, like in, in terms of the, the, the forming the, the Declaration of Independence, uh, the ideas of, of America, the Republic, hmm. um, and then looking to like how secret organizations, uh, secret societies, all those things. Did the Masons play a role in that, by the way? Yes. Everything was created w in regards to the founding fathers, Washington, D.C. Yes. yes. I mean, go, OK. Yes. Okay. No, no. And, and the thing to understand about in those days, in the, in the 18th and the 19th centuries and earlier, 
there was no, the means of communicating across broad expanses of distance was very difficult, right? It took a month to get a message from the Americas to England, okay? If you were trying to ar arrange and organize an international array of collaborators behind a conspiracy for either good or for bad, because, I mean, people try to say that conspiracies by definition are bad. That's not true. Conspiracy as a word is a neutral term. It just means people conspiring, breathing together, working together for a common idea, right? That's all the word means. So it could be infused for good conspiracies, as I'm making the point that the American Revolution was a good conspiracy, and for bad, for evil. Now, at that time, you had espionage on a much higher level than people realize everywhere. Uh, double agents, triple agents uh, were, were all over the place. Um, and one of the only ways to ensure uh, the, you didn't have like encrypted emailing that didn't exist, right? Where you could just send from like proton mail to proton mail. Not that I think that that's all that, that secure these days, but still you didn't have encryption, right? You, you didn't have things like that. So if you wanted to coordinate one of the, the, the pieces of infrastructure that were in place were the lodges. And so there was a battle that happened throughout this entire period. And this battle goes back for a long time between, especially peaking with the, Amer with the, uh, the Italian Renaissance, where you had uh, secret societies, lodges, that were um, in communication with other lodges to, that coordinated affairs. Now you had, um, yes, Ben Franklin, you had Mozart, you had uh, Washington, Lafayette, many, many leading figures around the world were masons that throws a lot of people off because if you just have the equation in your mind freemasons equal pure evil everything freemasons do and thus everybody who is involved with freemasons are thus evil um and that's your formula to explain history then you miss the fights within these institutions yep. especially at this time between the british like york right scottish right freemasonic lodges and those lodges that were uh secured by ben franklin and his collaborators in france especially which were uh, operating under humanist principles. And you could see that, especially in Austria, where you had Mozart's, uh, like, you know, look at the magic flute. It's a, uh, Mozart was a friend of the American Revolution. Many of his, his operas and, and uh, music was inspired by that as well. By the idea of, of, a, of a new age of brotherhood. So was Beethoven, um, very much so. So his magic flute was a Masonic opera. Uh, the, the, the guy who runs the Masonic lodge that, that Mozart is a part of is this guy, Schenkenator. Schenkenator is somebody when you read and it's been archived, they had a magazine, a science magazine, which was demystifying these different uh, secret uh, symbolisms and introducing real science for the population so that the symbols weren't just things that make you brainwashed where you just like go into a trance and you repeat a ritual to get to a higher level. At a certain point, you're drinking baby blood. <laughs> um <laughs> And, and, and so with Schenkenator's uh, magazines and things that were circulating, he was really declaring war on the entire idea of Gnosticism, the idea right. of that uh, there's a knowledge for the inner elites. And and that is always going to be independent from a knowledge of for the masses who have to stay dumb. That's a master slave society. And, and they were operating under a very different idea. Um, so it's really the Gnostic versus anti-Gnostic uh, groups. And I would say by in Europe, by the 1815 uh, Congress of Vienna, most of the, the humanist uh, lodges that Marquis de Lafayette was a part of were purged and their leaders were assassinated in Europe. Um, I've seen evidence of the more positive humanist traditions in the American lodges. Not all of them, because a lot of them are, are evil as sin, like Albert Pike, right? 
or yep. uh, or a lot of the, the New England transcendentalists are part of this too, running a counter operation. Um, but <clears throat> that continued a little bit longer where you had positive influences within the Masonic systems or some of the lodges in the Americas before that seems to have been purged in the, the 20th century. Um, I don't see any evidence of that these days so much. Maybe it's out there. I don't see it. All that to say, back to the story. So, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Benjamin Franklin, as a surprise for Canadians, um, he founded <laughs> not just American institutions. He wasn't only a, an American nation builder. This is a, a Canadian 2006 homage uh, stamp commemorating Ben Franklin. And you're like, why? Why is Ben Franklin on the Canadian stamp? It's because Ben Franklin was the founder of Canada's National po uh, Canada's Post postal service in, in 1763, um, which extended postal services, which again, you have to have it in the age, in the age before electronic communication without postal service, your, your population was going to be a little local peasant population, very easy to control, right? You didn't have access to newspapers as well, which, uh, Ben Frank, uh, Ben Franklin was also the founder of Canada's first newspaper. Um, that's Fleury de Mesplat. Uh, the guy Ben Franklin recruits while he's an ambassador in France in the 1770s, and he brings Meplat to Quebec to set up the printing press. He helps him out, provides the funds, the, the equipment, and uh, and Meplat starts pr pr uh, printing the Montreal Gazette as part of the cultural education. Because how are you going to get people to fight for an idea of independence, of freedom, if they don't even know how to read? And that's part of the the feudal problem of France and of, of Quebec was there was this... Uh, in, encrusted seigneurie system, this this lordship system, where it was a master-slave dichotomy, where the the peasants ran the, the 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 fields like talking cows. They didn't have to read, and there was a policy, even enforced by much of the church at the time, to keep that ignorance going. That made it impossible for people to risk their lives for a higher ideal when they couldn't read. So this was a big part of Ben Franklin's designs. So again, <laughs> a big nation builder in, in Canada too, and I mentioned he was here. One of the things in 1774 also that kept Canada away from or Quebec from joining the, the U.S. cause was a bribe in 1774, which was one. It was, it's actually outlined in the Declaration of Independence as one of the intolerable acts. So it's the, the declaration was not just about not wanting to pay taxes or not liking uh, taxes on tea or, you know, things like that. That's that's how idiots today try to oversimplify what the, the cause was. There was something like 28 different elements of, uh, of of issues that the U.S. Uh, leaders had. You sure about that? You sure it wasn't a three percent tax on Earl Grey tea? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, but but so one of the biggest things that was also a bribe for Canada was the Quebec Act, which basically turned on the left is the the geography right of uh, British territories in North America, and in 1774. The Quebec Act was passed that extended, it basically took native lands, gave it over to uh, the British, and uh, surrounded the lands all the way to the Ohio River that prevented the development of the inland zone, which was always the dream of Ben Franklin and going back to Cotton Mather and, and even Winthrop. There was always an idea of a continental new type of society founded upon natural law. This goes back to the, the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in, in 1630, um, which was and that's why they called it the Continental Congress. It, it wasn't called the Congress of the 13 colonies. The idea was always to not first make it work here in, in North America, far enough removed from the corruption of the old world, where the 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 families, you know, the, the nasty heirs of the British of the Roman Empire of, of Venice 
had encrusted their tentacles sufficiently deep that no revolutionary possibility was was going to happen. And far this was far enough away from that. And then when that could work, then it would spread uh, more broadly. So this is one of the things that kept as well as, you know, burning in hellfire forever. Um, this is one of the things that kept Quebec out of the revolution. So, and I, today as, as the audience, I, I hope people don't mind. I'm going a little bit more in presentation mode because it's such an important concept that I just want people to really, really uh, get this is as a unified idea. Um, Benjamin West. So the guy I remember the, the cover of my book that's coming out, that's a painting by Benjamin West. Again, the president of the British Royal Academy of Fine Arts in London. Um, Benjamin West in 1815 paints, a, paints Ben Franklin as Prometheus uh, with scientific experiments, not only his discovery of electricity, electric fire at the time, and he was known as the Prometheus of America. That's what all of the, the European scientists and called him because, um, you know, he had no university education. He had no high school education. I think he had a grade three education, but he was so self-governed. Um, that he didn't waste time. He used all of his time well, going back to the age of 10 when he first met Cotton Mather and was recruited to Cotton Mather's conspiracy in, in the 1715 period. So this is this is the thing. Um, this is a painting by Benjamin West of the, the, the character, the soul of Ben Franklin. I don't know why there's creepy, there's a creepy baby that looks like an old man, but whatever, in the background. <laughs> So I'm not going to go through the keystones of his life, but needless to say, there's a lot. And the discovery of Ben Franklin's uh, 1751 discovery of electricity is inextricably linked to his later uh, creation of a system of natural law. There were two sides of natural law, moral and physical, and he understood them as one thing. Today, anybody trying to think of science without the, the idea of politics and mor morality are, are mentally and spiritually handicapped and vice versa. But this guy is on top of things. And I mentioned here in, uh, there's a book by Graham Lowry, uh, a historian who passed away uh, some years ago, who did something called How the Nation Was Won, which goes through the story wonderfully. I've used this, I've read this like five times. It's an amazing resource. Um, maybe you guys could put this in the description box of the video. But um, he was deployed on a counterintelligence operation of London's Hellfire Club. That was a secret society that, of pure evil. Isaac Newton was a part of this. Um, Bernard Mondeville was one of the leading thinkers behind Not it. Not Isaac Newton. Yeah. <laughs> Not the holy man of God that was and, inspired by the Lord himself. Yeah. The, God even threw an apple at him to uh, <laughs> help him make know. discoveries. Yes. Um, yeah. And anybody who think, thinks that that's how you make a discovery by having fruit drop on your head. Sorry. I uh, have fruit drop on my head all the time. I have yet to make a discovery. There you go. Testify. Testify, brother. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, so he he infiltrates this thing as part of a counterintel operation. Um, and this is, again, why people think that, oh, yeah, he's this evil Empire club operative. It's like, no, he 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 got intel from the inside deployed by Cotton Mather. And and Graham Lowry goes through how that happened really nicely. One of the things about Ben Franklin is he never writes his true thoughts down because you cannot. There's so much interception of of letters going on. Um, on all sides at that time. So you can't fully say generally what you think without burning the letter if you're going to consp conspire. That's why smoking gun evidence usually goes up in smoke when people are trying to look for the proof you know, of conspiracies in history. They're there, but they're rare. And you're not going to find it. He has to, you know, he lives a life uh, governed by a higher intention that he has to some somewhat keep uh, secured. 
but you see it in the shadows and in the, in the actions that he takes and the in the accomplishments that he does creating the first gazettes the first fire departments uh new innovations in musical instruments he discovers the gulf stream he's the guy who discovers the gulf stream he, he the terms battery charge conductor are developed by ben franklin um you know this guy is is organizing he's he's uh, you know organizing networks across europe he even sets up the first plan for union so the the join or die thing people think of this as a as a rallying cartoon that ben franklin did for the american revolution no this is the 1756 plan of union that he was trying to organize already before the french indian uh war they call it that but it's really the french um, uh british war um before that he was trying to create a unified uh, uh grouping of the colonies to act with one mind um which was subverted. It, it passed in Albany, but it didn't pass elsewhere. But this, again, just more evidence that this stuff goes back further. And it go back even further to 1729. And you have Ben Franklin writing in The Necessity of a Paper Currency, which outlines a program for the economic liberation of the, the colonies. He describes here um, how we have no poor houses in the colonies. And if we had some, there would be nobody to put them in, since there is in the colonies not a single unemployed person, neither beggars nor tramps. In the colonies, we issue our own paper money, and it is called colonial script. We issue it in proper proportion to make the goods and pass easily from the producers to the consumers. In this manner, creating ourselves our own paper money, we control its purchasing power, and we have no interest to pay to no one. Powerful. Powerful. And this goes on to define... Uh, he he amplifies this in his uh, attack on Malthus on the importance of population growth in, in 1751, where he gets across that value is not in the money itself. It's not in gold or some material thing that exists in space and time. It exists in the power of the mind to, to improve upon creation. And he's very clear on that, that any political economy has to be defined around that idea of value as located in the powers of the mind, the unlimited resource, which is the mind, to constantly perfect our understanding of, of natural law, of the universe, and apply that back in the form of new technologies, new inventions, which is why Ben Franklin is such a, a renowned, not only inventor, but he's also a man who made it, he encouraged as many people to become inventors and made it possible uh, by providing uh, legal protections for inventions than anybody else in history. And just some of the people who carried on and advanced upon this policy I just threw out here as American system leaders of Alexander Hamilton. And people who, who bash Hamilton have not actually read either his works or looked at the actual fights he led. They're reading slanders that have been popular for over two centuries, ironically often funded by uh, the people who organized his assassination in 1804. Um, you have Henry Clay. You have Henry C. Carey, Lincoln's lead economic advisor. Henry Henry. Clay, Clay, before that, was the guy that Lincoln said was the core inspiration, as did Gilpin, uh, who was a major defender of protectionism, large-scale development, internal improvements. Uh, you have Matthew Carey, the father of Henry C. Carey, and a friend of Ben Franklin, who Ben Franklin brought in from Ireland. You have John Quincy Adams, uh, who fought to create a continental nation or continental interest, and as well as a foreign policy vectored around a community of common principle. That was the, America's first strong anti-colonial foreign policy that gave, that later gave rise to the UN charter that, that FDR loved with the good neighbor policy and obviously Lincoln. Uh, ben Franklin also was one of the first popularizers of Confucianism in the Americas in going back to the 1730s. And I'm, uh, there's two, there's two books here for, for this story. People should, should read Anton Chaik and who you guys have, have interviewed recently 
Um, his Who We Are Volume 1 goes through this story perfectly, uh, better than anything I've ever seen. That's just been made available. His Volume 2 is coming out soon. Uh, David Wang is a professor. Um, I had the pleasure of reviewing his recent book that will be published in about two a month or two on Ben Franklin, America and China, and Ben Franklin's influence uh, of Chinese civilization, especially Confucius and Mencius. Yep. And Ben Franklin was producing this in his in his Poor Richard's Almanac. He was producing sayings from Confucius, the life of Confucius. Um, he even said uh, to a friend that the model for his life is Jesus and Confucius and Socrates. So that's because Ben Franklin was really a secret communist. That's what it was. Yes, that is what the hillbillies <laughs> will say when they hear this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like this guy is just such a, a, a universal mind. He's looking for what's universal in every culture and trying to feed that back, including Chinese techniques of making silk, which he brings to the Americas, uh, different forms of technologies in China, canal building that was done in China. He, br he brings into the United States. Um, so it's, it's serious. Even though, so this brings us now to a transition to the last part of my, my presentation, which is the international aspects of the revolution. The revolution was not a revolution of 13 colonies, right? Um, I think people have, got, have started to get in the point. It involved an international web, a conspiracy across the reaches of the world, stretching from France, where we had on the left, Marquis de Lafayette, the young 19-year-old uh, revolutionary who broke the law by... and joined a, a grouping of other uh, French patriots to, to come to the Americas in 1777 to lend their hand to the cause. And he later on organized very closely with Ben Franklin uh, to get the Treaty of Alliance with France in 1778 that brought French France in fully to finally tip the balance in some ways in favor of the United States that was going to be crushed easily by the British. Um, the U.S. was was not doing well with as, as a standalone. So Ben Franklin being in Europe, organizing for decades this uh, grouping through his discovery of electricity, that was a big one. Um, Tadeusz Kosciuszko, uh, the great general of Poland, who uh, is later on goes back to Poland after he trains and works with the Americans and, and helps uh, fight a lot of major strategic battles against the British. He goes back to Poland and creates, he leads the Amer uh, the Polish uh, Republican movement, which unfortunately is crushed later on. Um, you have also, um, uh, what's his name? Steuben, General Wilhelm von Steuben, who is deployed by Frederick the Great of Prussia to go and help train the U.S. farmers to become soldiers. Um, his his training his 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 intellect is vital strategically in organizing strategic battle plans that again tip the scales. Um, here we have Catherine the Great and her young leading ally Ekaterina Dashkova, and this is a, a fascinating story too because in 1780 Russia chimes in finally under under Catherine the Great and defends the American cause by creating what's called the League of Armed Neutrality. The reason why, basically, this this is what sets the foundation for for modern maritime law in times of war, uh, which guarantees all neutral players in a conflict to have freedom of navigation, um, such that the British couldn't confiscate uh, arms, equipment, and other things that were going from Europe or Russia to help the U.S. Uh, rebels against the British. Um, the reason why this worked was Ben Franklin in 1780, while still in France, organized. Uh, he met a young girl. Uh, Ekaterina Dashkova, who helped Catherine the Great attain power some years earlier. She was in her 30s. And what makes this girl so fascinating is she was the, the president of the Russian Academy of Sciences, 
She was the first woman president of that academy. I think the only woman president and a major reformer of it. She was also an artist, a playwright. Um, but she totally overhauled the academy from a lot of the corruption it had, it had suffered in stagnation. And she became a good friend with Ben Franklin and uh, even made Ben Franklin an, a member of the Russian Academy of Sciences at the same time that, that Franklin reciprocated by making her a member of his philosophical society, which was an international science society, basically, uh, with people, again, all of these guys were members of Marty Lafayette, many, many others. So all that to say, this plays a key role. And soon, you know, you have uh, nations like Sweden, Denmark, Prussia, Austria join the League of Armed Neutrality. And this provides vital supplies th for the next three years to the Americas. Uh, yeah, to, to the American uh, rebels. But it doesn't just end with Europe. Uh, oh, yeah, right. I would also just add to Ireland, right? Very close proximity to the beast. But 20 of the leading generals of the Continental Congress were Irishmen, um, many of whom returned back uh, to Ireland and fought to lead the 1797 rebellion against the British that was supposed to establish an independent uh, Irish Republic, yep. uh, which was unfortunately subverted. At that time, the world was was turning more and more into a mess because it required the French Revolution to have been a success. And at the time, uh, that was that was subverted in 17. Really, it began in 1789 in a very good way. A lot of the Ben Franklin's Franklin's leading collaborators unleashed the French Revolution in a peaceful way that involved the collaboration of the king, Louis XVI. And the tennis court oath and the, the Declaration of the Rights of Man were beautiful documents. Thomas Paine was a part of it, was a, 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 an architect of that. But unfortunately, a lot of the great scientists who were trying to bring this into being uh, lost their heads. Uh, Marquis Lafayette only avoided getting his head cut off by escaping to Austria, where he lived out the Revolution of France in a Austrian dungeon um, for five years. But uh, Lavoisier, uh, the, the, the president, uh, Jean-Sylvain Bailly, of the, uh, the, the mayor of Paris, who is also the leading astronomer of Europe uh, and a leader of the, he was the guy who headed the, uh, the Assemblée Nationale in France, all got their heads cut off by 1791 to 93, 94, when the, uh, the British created, they basically, British intelligence under Jeremy Bentham, who, by the way, was who Aaron Burr lived with for five years after killing Hamilton later on. But uh, Shelburne especially, and, and Bentham organized to turn the French Revolution into a Jacobin bloody terror, uh, a color revolution effectively. Um, I go through that in my book that's coming out soon. So people want to know more about that, they can read that book or read the articles that I've written on the French Revolution. But all that to say that all, that revolution had to succeed in France first before it could spread to Poland, to Ireland, to other parts of Prussia even. And without that, it was a mess and they were subverted. So that's that's part of the tragedy of history. It's, it's to sort of see the potential of what should have been, how it was subverted. Now, the, the surprising thing for me in, in digging around in some of this, this history was that it wasn't isolated to Europe. It involved India. The, the, the Muslim leader, Haider Ali, who ran uh, the Mysore region of India, the, the most Mysore. important strategic zone of India was, was Mysore. And Haider Ali from 1780 declares a full-scale uh, war on the British. And again, Ben Franklin's collaborators are behind this in many ways to helping to coordinate where this is uh, the French ambassador, the French, uh, I think he's the ambassador to India, uh, Soufran, who is the guy who arranges to provide the French Navy 
to assist in Hyder Ali's rebellion, which successfully kicks the ass of the British again and again and again. Britain is annihilated in so many wonderful instances. It's really enjoyable to watch or to read some of these accounts. Um, now, Hyder Ali dies in 1782, but despite that, uh, this is one painting, a rendition of the Indian Hyder Ali and Tipu Sultan. His son's name is Tipu Sultan, who continues to lead the fight against the British after 1782 when Hyder Ali dies. But these are these are rockets annihilating uh, the British soldiers in India. It's amazing. Yeah, these these rockets amazing. were like nothing that had ever been seen. They could travel for over two miles with ingenious tubing and 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 fuels for propulsion. This was invented by then. Yeah, it's invented by the by the Muslim Indians. <laughs> wow, man, the Miser Rebellion is pretty impressive. Jesus, it's wow, impressive. so impressive. Great I, I, region for some of the best tea in the world, by the way. As well, yeah, which uh, exactly. <laughs> but but see, at the time, the British had another idea in mind, right? Because they were like, okay, India at the time still had a lot of textiles. They could they, they were the best tea makers, obviously, um, but they had the best textiles, the most advanced. They were the second GDP in the world at this time behind China. China was number one by a long shot. India was number two. Uh, advanced technology, advanced science before the British come in and, and screw things up for both China and India in the 19th century. But at this time, Britain goes and steals after they finally put down this. It takes them over a decade of, of constant fighting with the, the Mysores uh, to finally put down the rebellion. And they, they never forgive India for this, but they steal all of these technologies in textile manufacturing, in in uh, munitions, in in rocketry, and then by 1804 they just confiscate it and send it to Britain, um, which is what all empires do. They can't create unto themselves; they can just plus, steal from others. Plus 37 trillion dollars worth of wealth, as well. Exactly. And what do they leave in in exchange for India, which becomes the crown jewel? They they systematically one crush all of India's te indigenous textile manufacturing capability. They say, no, Britain's going to do that. You will stay uh, low level, underdeveloped. And they destroy their history. They, they, they destroy libraries upon libraries to, to try to create an amnesia of what they, what India's, what India actually is. Oh yeah, man. They, they, they allow some things to be salvaged and promoted like the Kama Sutra. That's fine. But everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But everything else that indicates any nobility in the Indian uh, culture, they, they really systematically try to destroy. And they, they say that India, your, your main thing that you're going to do from now on in the 19th century is make opium. That'll be your, your main GDP, your main source of wealth. And we're going to sell that opium. You'll get some money that'll like encrust your, uh, your Brahmins, your corrupt you know, caste system that they inflame. Because Hyder Ali was not a fan of the caste system, right? right. Neither were the Sikhs. Yep. But the British go in and flame that. Many of the uh, Indian Rajas at that time were not fans of that at all. No, they weren't. No, exactly. And uh, and then, you know, we're going to feed that opium to China. That's why they call the the American uh, deep state back in those days that were working with, uh, that took over the Federalist Party after Hamilton died and working with Aaron Burr, like uh, Pickering. Thomas Pickering is one of these lead figures. They call them the Boston Brahmins. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> that was the name back in the day. <laughs> Boston Province. That's brilliant. That was literally how they were called. Um, and also Tipu Sultan, right? Like he, this is not, they're not unaware of the U.S. rebellion happening at that time. Tipu Sultan in 1782 writes to the Continental Congress. He sends letters saying that every blow that is struck in the cause of American liberty throughout the world in France and in India and elsewhere. And so long as a single insolent a savage tyrant. Uh, remains the struggle shall continue wow. and he's always getting 
him and Hyder Ali are self-aware that this is one fight. And by virtue of them doing what they did in 1780 to 83, especially, they absorbed 20% of the British Navy, which was supposed to go to suppress the rebellious Americans. And that was all redirected towards India. So that, again, gave the U.S. a strategic advantage uh, that was needed. And, and they were all aware of it. There was collaboration happening, again, largely in many ways through the French that were supplying the, the lines. And you'll find that many of these guys are also Masons. Okay. Yep. Uh, keep that in mind. That's that's partially how you're able to get the covert communications um, from one location to another. And again, keep in mind that by the by the time of the the French Jacobin terror, the positive Masonic lodges in France are largely wiped out. Uh, yeah. There's not much left. So again, now let's look at another Muslim leader, a friend of America, the first nation in the world to recognize the Declaration of Independence. The first nation. <laughs> is Morocco mm -hmm. in December 1777. Uh, 1770, yeah, December 1777. It's the First Nation. And C Emperor Sidi Muhammad stands out of all of the Northern African leaders at the time because many of them were basically, you know, working Barbary pirates. That was what they were called. The Barbary yep. pirates were all over North Africa. They were very much collaborating uh, in consort with the British East India Company. And the British were very conveniently providing many of these pirates insider information, intelligence for when American ships would be moving through that zone, uh, especially through, you know, through the Straits of Gibraltar and other places. And there, and again and again, there was a disastrous occurrence of American ships getting taken over by the Barbary pirates and looted and Americans being held hostage. Sidi Muhammad stands out by saying, no, he's a friend of the United States and he provides protection for all American shipping and gives them safe harbor and passage through through Morocco. And again, it's the French uh, diplomats on the ground in Morocco at the time that arranged this uh, amazing treaty. Later on in 1784, um, Benjamin Franklin arranges to be along with uh, John Jay, uh, part of a delegation to create a special economic arrangement with Morocco, um, which unfortunately is sabotaged by the American Barbary Wars that are artificially manipulated by the deep state of the United States at the time, as well as uh, many of these agents on the ground the, uh, in North Africa who, the, the books have been written on this. But one of the things also to keep in mind is that the first ship, the first military ship produced from the United States after the revolution was called the Hyder Ali. So the Americans were very, very grateful uh, for this. Ben Franklin, I love this quote. I figured it would just end on how he sees himself. But on the whole, though I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but fell far short of it, yet I was by the endeavor, the endeavor to be a better person, a better and happier man that I otherwise should have been had I not attempted it. So that is the tale that I wanted to tell of the true United States as an unfinished symphony. And uh, I hope that, that that is something which changes how people think of their nation or what, what it is that they hope. It's so, it's so beautifully said, man. And you know what? You, when you sit there and when people listen to this, and I urge people to go back and listen to this broadcast again, take some notes, okay? Stop thinking binary. This is why you got to look at the, comp the complexity of the world in its entirety. There's a lot of people that think that 1776 happened in a vacuum. Let me tell you something, man. You know, 3% of the population risen up against the most powerful empire in the world. And we beat them. No, that's not what happened. 
you had key strategic things that were, that were occurring throughout the world. You have the Russians that put the, the British in check. You have the you have the uh, in, in North Africa, um, uh, Sidi Mohammed, Emperor Sidi Mohammed was helping to put the British in check. And in the Mysore Rebellion, you had the Indians that were keeping the British in check. These things and the French. Let's not forget the French. We were the France. We. And they were doing their part. Why? Because they believed in an open economic system, a modular system that would allow countries to plug directly into it while maintaining their identity, their sovereignty, their culture, and being involved in real equitable trade. And that was all dashed to pieces over time because of financial interests that all linked back to the City of London Corporation. And here we are today. That dream is alive, and it is well, and it is winning, but it's not happening here. One belt, one road. Matt. Yeah, very well said. And I just find that that is such a, an amazing irony of history yep. that the nations who are acting the most American in the tradition, like the actual meaning of the constitutional concepts and the Declaration of Independence and this American system that we just went through um, are... Russia and China, the nations that people think of are the most like opposite to the Amer to the United States as you could get. This is actually, no, they're the ones who are defending the best traditions of what made America a good thing um, by extending the Belt and Road, but also the principle of win-win cooperation, the right of every nation to have autonomous control, sovereign control of their resources and destinies. And people could say, oh yeah, but they're imposing the communist party uh the, the communist machine onto all of the countries working with the bri and it's like no name me one i've had people who actually wrote to me last time i said this on on the show a few weeks ago somebody wrote to me saying yeah but taiwan and hong kong <laughs> they're imposing communism communism about taiwan and, and hong kong and it's like yeah they're part of china they're not other countries every other one of the 135 countries uh on the one hand are uh are free to do their own thing. They're, they're not being imposed. They're being provided the means to develop their own, de their own economies with the Belt and Road, massive infrastructure projects. And number two, it's not even communism. Like if you actually look at what this thing is, they got more private enterprise in China these days than, <laughs> than the rest of the world. Um, you have, yes, you have a state run centralized command. That's true. But you also have a lot of rich people. You have a lot of a lot of a lot of inventions, a lot of patents. More patents are being discovered right now or, or registered for in China than Highest even in the United capita. States. Highest per capita of willing of women billionaires in the world. Women well, there billionaires. You there you go. My God, right? Okay. <sighs> like, yeah. And I, on top of that, you have sovereign banking, right? The the only place where you where private central banking has not taken hold is in China. That's the only place. That like well, the first place that Soros was kicked out of in 1989 was China. They got rid of the open societies. They shut all that down. They kept a, div a division between commercial banking and investment banking in China. That's the only place Glass-Steagall still exists. That's why they're able to get reliable long-term credit at low interest for big projects. That's why they can build a skyscraper in a day where it takes us five years or, or more. You know, um, so it's. It's something the U.S. used to actually do. If you look at how Lincoln organized the, the Transcontinental Railway or how FDR organized the Tennessee Valley Authority or the Rural Electrification or a lot of these things, or JFK organized the, uh, the direction, the national direction given to building the hydroelectric dams or um, the space program. This is 
you create the point of government is to both defend the general welfare, the, the good of the whole at the same time as the inalienable rights of the individual. Now, I'll admit China has a way to go on the aspect of the, the inalienable rights of the individual. It's not a democracy. Okay, there's democratic institutions or elements, There's but everything is a process of change. You're either changing towards getting better or getting a lot worse. And I got to tell you, when you look at every measurable thing that you could that you could use to judge which direction Eurasia is going versus the USA, Canada, and the North American basket case or the North Atlantic Alliance basket we're, case. We're ascending, Matthew, to the highest levels of wokeness. Yeah, right. We're ascending beyond any domain where truth and reason exists. It's great. What a great utopia where you don't have to feel bad about lying because there's no such thing as truth. It's just exactly yeah. nothing exists anymore. There's no such thing as truth. There's no uh, right or wrong. There's no male or female. True liberty. Wonderful world. I mean, I'm liberated as a liberated man. I am so liberated. I'm so free. It's great. And this, but this is the, the gets at the other epistemological aspect of warfare, right? Because British epistemological warfare, I didn't really touch on that so much. But Ben Franklin is is constantly waging this fight because liberalism is is really what you had coming out of the British Enlightenment. It, it, you know, the materialist people like John Locke, who was, or Adam Smith, yeah. who, by the way, we're told this is the garbage that we, this is how good the British are. The British empire is so good that they've been able to convince generation after generation of Americans that the, the imperial British thinkers who hated the American, everything that the, that the American cause stood for are the, the inspiration for the U S revolution. They're told John Locke uh, and his theories gave rise to the American revolution. No, John Locke gave rise to the, the Constitution of North Carolina that embedded slavery and the right to property. Yeah, as prim primal, but he was also on the board of trade of Britain that kept the colonies legally uh, underdeveloped by banning any rights of the colonies to have, have manufacturing. That was John Locke who ran the report that banned manufacturing in the Americas. Um, he was on the British, uh, the, the, he was a, a shareholder of the um, British Royal Africa Company. That brought in 6 million slaves between 1708 and 1776. That wasn't an American thing. That The Americans were always fighting against that. The British were the ones pushing a slave economy onto the United States. And John Locke, the guy who doesn't believe in the soul, who says we're just blank slates to be written on by a master class, his ideas of freedom are all rooted in that assumption. Um, that guy didn't give rise to anything good. And neither did Adam Smith, who, by the way, wrote his, his you know, He's another British liberal who doesn't believe in truth because you're like, whatever goes, don't regulate the economy, don't have direction, don't have intention, don't have ideas that govern economy or value. That's tyranny. Uh, Adam Smith says in 1776, which is the year of the revolution, which is not a coincidence because that book was written on commission by Lord Shelburne, the guy who runs British intelligence a few years earlier. He commissions right. this book to be written in order to justify why colonies, the especially rebellious ones, should not develop manufacturing. And the idea is if you have a lot of agricultural land, then you're going to get more money doing that by buying low and selling deer and just selling what you're good at. And uh, invisible hands will, will self-regulate magically uh, the marketplace, but you just have to, no protectionism, no regulation, just liberally let it be. Don't, because you know, and so this is, this is the, the thinking which people again are told is American. It's not, it's a, that's, that's, that's part of the British mental rape on America, on yeah. American people, generation after generation. You got to read Ben Franklin to, to actually get what, what gave rise 
to this idea. There's there's other beautiful thinkers that really did inspire the revolution, and it's not them. It's not it's not Smith or Locke. It's people like Leibniz. Um, if you read Har like go to the Schiller Institute is a good resource that I recommend people check out. You guys perform their their conferences a lot. There's a lot of good research on that website going through this history really nicely. It's incredible. It really is incredible, man. Yeah. Unreal. Totally. Matthew Eret, the scholar, the mind, and the gentleman himself. He is here with us, folks. And again, you can check out Matthew's work over at his Substack. And also check out CanadianPatriot.com and the RisingTideFoundation.net. A plethora, a wellspring, a smorgasbord of information, of, of documents, of historical uh, analysis. Folks, you got to go there. Get yourself an education. Learn how the whole damn thing works. It's all complexities. It's not about, you know, one group is this way and everybody in that group thinks the same. No, it's not that. Stop thinking binary. Hey, man, you know, I always want to do this, right? I want to get the guy who, who thinks it's like a, everything's a Masonic conspiracy. Yeah. I want to get him versus the guy who thinks it's a complete Catholic conspiracy versus the guy who thinks it's a, it's a, it's a Jewish conspiracy. And I want to have them all fight it out. You <laughs> 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 see who wins. Oh, <laughs> man. No, you know what, yeah, what it is? <laughs> well, yeah, pay-per-view? Yeah, right. <laughs> My money's on the Jew hater. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it, well, that's the thing with these. It's like uh, there, there's these little. Um, what I've noticed is that the British technique, and I won't say, I shouldn't say British because it's an imperial oligarchical technique. They're really good at synthetic cult creation. They're, they're, they're able to create local internally consistent ideologies that profess to explain something macro, something beyond the census. And that's good. Like human beings, unlike animals, we can do that. Animals don't do that. They adapt to whatever, you know, environment you put them in. Um, and that's animals. It's fine for them. Human beings generate concepts where concept driven species and we can perfect our concepts or we can act foolishly we can not self-examine our thoughts as we're making them and when that happens we can get a lot of fallacies and and cloudy stupidity to govern our convictions because the thought shapes a conviction which shapes our actions which shapes our identity which shapes how we situate ourselves in a process right um and that's what it's always about it's it's self-conscious identity formation that's the nature of, of epistemological warfare and you'll find that even when you look back a lot of the um, the the Jewish conspiracy literature, uh, and yes, I mean there are Jews. Yes, that is true. You'll find Jewish names in banking families that played nefarious roles in processes historically. The Rothschilds are a thing. The Montefiore family is a thing. You, you'll find others. The Bronfmans are a thing. But you got to if if you just try to find a formula, some math like this equals this. You know, this is the cause of of all evil whether it's Masonic, whether it's Jews, whether it's uh, Catholic conspiracy or whatever, you can pick your, pick your flavor, right? Uh, hybrid aliens, uh, shape-shifting, lizards, whatever. Um, as soon as you, you, you have that, you could then apply your formula to everything and uh, you'll feel like this is explaining everything. This, and you feel more strongly and strongly about it and it becomes a blind ideology and you start ignoring all of the evidence that doesn't fit with your formula. Computers do that, right? That you plug in a computer and it can only find what it's programmed to find. Correct. Evidence outside of the programming doesn't exist for the computer. Correct. And that's what people who are treated like blank slates, they're kind of like computers. You could program them. That's why they like, that's why the empire likes John Locke. They don't yep. like Leibniz. Yep. So 
I think that if you if you actually look at it though, you you always self-examine. You think, okay, here's my hypothesis. It may be it's it's founded on some good principles, but maybe there's things I don't know. Uh, and you're always self-examining your thoughts. Then you're not so inclined to be trapped into one of these synthetic. I, and cults. unfortunately, the problem is the majority of people are. Majority of people are binary thinkers. Majority of people are sheep. Majority of people need to be led. Majority of people don't do any any sort of real critical thinking. They don't. They lack the capacity. And that's fine. It is what it is. But do some damn reading for once. You know, it, it is what it is, man. But the example that I like to give is is I've always said this: the global conspiracy. I liken it to uh, Murder on the Orient Express, the uh, the famous art, uh, novel with Monsieur Poirot. With Hercule Poirot, right? The famous detective. He was on the Orient Express, trying to find out, <laughs> trying to find out who killed the guy, right? The the main, the 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 victim right. in this in, in this caper who 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 was murdered on the train, and he started interviewing everybody on the train. He found out that it's everybody. Every single, everybody <laughs> had a motive to kill. Him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I kind of yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's an element of truth. That's how that's how a lie is prop is propitiated uh because there's an element of truthfulness in every lie which is successful otherwise it would be something that the mind doesn't take in if there wasn't elements of truth uh so you know yeah you just have to that's that's a good the poirot example is a good one and i would just say here like before i know we've we've gone on longer than our strategic hour uh implies in in the title but uh, i would just say this coming week um you know people who've been watching this regularly know that um I, i curate with my wife, uh, ser- uh, weekly classes on uh, on history and science and everything. So this week we have coming up uh, this Sunday afternoon a class on the Pan African movement. Shikanti yeah. uh, Diop will be explored what he was doing to create an African Renaissance in the 20th century. Um, other Pan African leaders who were inspired by the best of the United States are going to be also uh, looked at. Um, we got a class the week afterwards on the Bandung Conference uh, that established a China India Africa. Uh, design in the 1950s for the five piece, uh, principles of peaceful coexistence, and a lot more is going to come up. So if anybody wants to, to be on these things live, they just need to write to info at risingtidefoundation.net. That's info at risingtidefoundation.net. Send an email. I'll send you the uh, the Zoom link, and you could just take part, learn, ask a question. You know, good. It's good for the mind. Absolutely, and we'll have that also in the description box. Sweet. Folks, thank you for listening in. Again, the man is Matthew Eret. Go check out his website. The links are, will be in the description box. And thank you all for joining us. Subscribe, like, comment, and share. And with that being said, El Cuco, take it away.